0: I really like Docketwise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, Docketwise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about Docketwise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It has been a difficult two weeks at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court appears to be on a mission to take the U.S. to a pre-war in court world of constitutional jurisprudence, and indeed, perhaps even into the 19th century. Dobbs is the latest example. For excellent analyses on what the court has been up to and deep dives into many of its cases, I encourage everyone to check out Dahlia Lethwick's excellent podcast on Slate called Amicus. Before getting to the cases, I'd like to read a quote from the Dobbs dissent shared on social media on Friday by one of the brilliant women that I used to clerk with in the Southern District of Florida. Quote, To allow a state to exert control over one of the most intimate and personal choices a woman may make is not only to affect the course of her life, monumental as those effects might be, It is to alter her views of herself and her understanding of her place in society as someone with the recognized dignity and authority to make these choices, end quote. The podcast continues on. And this is an immigration podcast, and it was actually a generally favorable week for non-citizens in the courts. Starting off again with the Supreme Court. Kicking it off with the Supreme Court again. United States v. Taylor, published by the Supreme Court on June 21st, 2022. As I so often state, I cannot review all or even most of the categorical approach Armed Career Criminal Act cases. But when the Supreme Court speaks, I listen. Especially when it's on the Sentence Enhancement Crime of Violence Elements Clause, which is materially identical to the Crime of Violence Aggravated Felony definition used at INA Section 101A43F. And that's what we have here. Justice Gorsuch delivered the opinion for the majority, with Justices Thomas and Alito in dissent. This case regards attempted Hobbs Act robbery. And I'm not going to get into all the nuances of Hobbs Act robbery and all the sentence enhancement stuff discussed in the decision, although it is interesting. Important for us immigration lawyers, immigration applicants, immigration pundits, and tangentially interested immigration grandmas is that Mr. Taylor's imprisonment sentence is going to get a lot longer if his conviction for attempted Hobbs Act robbery qualifies as a crime of violence for sentence enhancement purposes. In this case, the Supreme Court held that it does not, resolving a circuit split in favor of criminal defendants. For both sentence enhancement and immigration purposes, a crime of violence describes a conviction that has, quote, an element the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person or property of another, end quote. The question then becomes, applying the categorical approach, does attempted Hobbs Act robbery always require that? To be sure, I'm nearly positive that Hobbs Act robbery itself requires this element use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force but does an attempt? Well, to get an attempt conviction under federal law, the government must show that, quote, one, the defendant intended to unlawfully take or obtain personal property by means of actual or threatened force, and two, he completed a substantial step towards that end, end quote. A substantial step is something more than, quote, mere preparation, end quote. It must be, quote, significant, end quote, but it, quote, need not be violent, end quote. The U.S. government conceded that latter point before the Supreme Court, and in doing so, essentially gave up the case, according to the Supreme Court's majority. Quote, To secure a conviction, the government must show an intention to take property by force or threat, along with a substantial step towards achieving that object. But an intention is just that. No more. End quote. Supreme Court went on to explain, relying on the model penal code, that, quote, whatever a substantial step is, end quote, it does not require the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person or property of another. And herein lies the main reason I'm summarizing this case. It appears to me that the rationale in this decision would preclude an aggravated felony crime of violence finding for most, dare I say all, attempt crimes at least if a state requires the same minimal, substantial step showing as do the feds. Because how about this? Quote, The Elements Clause does not ask whether the defendant committed a crime of violence or attempted to commit one. It asks whether the defendant did commit a crime of violence. End quote. The Elements Clause requires that the accused, quote, take specific actions against specific persons or their property. End quote. To explain its rationale, the Supreme Court makes up a hypothetical fact scenario, not based on any actual case, that it believes would not equate to violent force. Noted. The Supreme Court rejected the government's alternative arguments. And to be fair to the government, as I always am, Congress probably tried to cover conduct like this in the Sentence Enhancement Residual Clause, and maybe also in 18 U.S.C. Section 16B for immigration purposes but the Supreme Court has recently held that both of those statutes are unconstitutional. So now the government is trying to use the last remaining crime of violence tool to enhance the sentence, but it cannot do so because that tool isn't the correct tool. The Supreme Court therefore held that Mr. Taylor must serve 20 years in prison rather than 30. Oh, and by the way, this was a robbery gone awry where the accomplice killed somebody the categorical approach applies no matter how bad the crime was, and U.S. citizens enjoy the benefits of that approach far more often than do non-citizens. We just always seem to be talking about non-citizens in this context because this happens to be an immigration podcast. Justices Thomas and Alito dissented to explain, in part, that they hate the categorical approach. And here's some more big stuff on the realistic probability test. the government tried to rely on the Supreme Court's realistic probability test decision from Gonzales v. Duenas Alvarez, but the Supreme Court rejected the government's attempt for two very interesting reasons. First, the court appears to be holding that the realistic probability test has no role to play where, as in this case, a court is applying the elements of a federal conviction to a federal statute. Here, sentence enhancement. So it appears that the Supreme Court is holding that the realistic probability attest test is only potentially applicable where the criminal offense is a state offense. Very interesting. And perhaps more importantly, the Supreme Court distinguished Duenas Alvarez by stating that in that case, quote, the relevant state and federal offenses clearly overlapped, and the only question the court faced... Was whether state courts also applied the statute in a special, non generic manner. In contrast, here, because the comparison between the criminal statute and the enhancement statute was clear, that ends the inquiry, and nothing in Duenas Alvarez suggests otherwise. Put another way, It sounds like the Supreme Court is holding that the realistic probability test has no role to play when the statutory text and other sources resolve the categorical approach inquiry, unless there exists a state case, as queried in Duenas Alvarez, where the statute is being applied in an overbroad manner, thereby making a statute that did not appear at first overbroad, overbroad. Put another, another way. The realistic probability test is something implemented to assist non-citizens avoid removal and should never be used to transform clearly overbroad criminal statutes into a removable offense. And if that is the case, it would appear to align largely with how all circuits apply the realistic probability test except the Fifth Circuit and except the BIA in matter of Guadarrama. Indeed, and admittingly quoting slightly out of context here, the Supreme Court explains how Congress did not, quote, impose a burden on the defendant to present proof about the government's own prosecutorial habits. Congress tasked the courts with a much more straightforward job look at the elements of the underlying crime, end quote. It appears that I have found a new favorite realistic probability case to cite, one that so happens to come from Justice Gorsuch and the Supreme Court. I love this stuff. And that is United States v. Taylor. Next up is Mengistab v. Garland, published by the 7th Circuit on June 21st, 2022. This case is about deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. Mr. Mengistab is an ethnic Eritrean from Ethiopia and was a lawful permanent resident of the U.S. for 30 years. Unfortunately, he never naturalized, and even worse for everyone, he pled guilty to rape in Indiana in 2001 and received a six-year prison sentence. That meant that DHS could seek his removal, notwithstanding his long-time residence in the U.S. Long story short, because of the conviction, he was removable, and he was barred from everything except cat deferral. The IJ denied that in 2013, but Ethiopia refused to give the U.S. government travel documents for Mr. Mengistab, so ICE released him from custody. Remember, the Supreme Court's 2001's Adavis v. Davis decision, discussed last week? That is until 2020, when Ethiopia did provide ICE with the necessary travel documents. That just so happened to coincide, however, with the Tigray War in Ethiopia, and so Mr. Mengistab moved the BIA to reopen his case so that he could apply for CAT deferral again based on materially changed country conditions. And he definitely had an argument, for all you listeners with Ethiopia asylum cases, quote, The Tigray War has resulted in widespread attacks on civilians. Ethnic Eritreans, such as Mr. Mengistab, have suffered particularly severe human rights violations, End quote. The Seventh Circuit actually goes on for a few pages describing the sources of conflict in Ethiopia and Eritrea going very far back in time. Quite interesting, if you're interested, or if you need it for your own motion. The BIA denied Mr. Mengistab's motion, but the Seventh Circuit did not. Because, see, it's not just the Ethiopian government fighting in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. Eritrea joined the hostilities on the side of the Ethiopian government. Its main purpose in doing so appears to have been to use the war as cover to kill or forcefully repatriate the Eritrean refugees in Tigray. End quote. And so now, quote, it appears to be well within the realm of plausibility that a majority of the Eritrean refugees in Tigray who did not flee the war zone in time have now been killed or disappeared, most likely by means of forceful repatriation to Eritrea or conscription, and those who remain have been subjected to extreme violence, torture, starvation, rape, and displacement. End quote. Those are the Seventh Circuit's presidential country conditions all pretty relevant if you're an ethnic Eritrean like Mr. Mengistab, whose father opposed the Eritrean dictatorship many years ago, and who fled the regime with his family many years ago. I'm sorry, but I must continue on the country conditions, again, for anyone with a similar case, quote, in short, Tigray is presently one of the most dangerous places on earth, and the Eritrean refugees who are still in the region risk death or torture on a near daily basis, end quote. The BIA agreed that conditions had changed in Ethiopia, but just not in any way material to Mr. Mengistab's eligibility for CAT deferral. But the Seventh Circuit did not believe that completely correct. To succeed on his motion to reopen, Mr. Mengistab needed to establish his prima facie eligibility for the protection. Not that he actually deserves the protection, but that he's prima facie eligible now based on the new evidence most undermining of the BIA's denial to the Seventh Circuit, the Seventh Circuit isn't so sure that Ethiopia will even consider Mr. Mengistab a citizen, travel documents notwithstanding. While Mr. Mengistab was born in Ethiopia, his father was not, and quote, Ethiopian citizenship turns on parentage, not place of birth, end quote. Plus, at the time of that birth, there was not even an Eritrea yet. It was all Ethiopia. Plus, quote, Evidence in the record establishes that Ethiopian nationals of Eritrean origin often have been reclassified by Ethiopia as Eritrean citizens, end quote, and denied rights in Ethiopia on that basis. Pretty important stuff because to the Seventh Circuit, quote, the plight of Eritrean refugees in Ethiopia is, at present, dire. Thousands have been executed en masse by the militaries and militias fighting in Tigray. Thousands more have been tortured, displaced, raped, and starved, end quote. At a minimum, it seemed likely to the Seventh Circuit that Mr. Mengistab, quote, may still be tortured in the event of a crackdown on the Eritrean refugee population now flocking to Addis Ababa, end quote, which is the Ethiopian capital. So this is a must-read for Ethiopian asylum cases, and while the Seventh Circuit expressly states that it does not actually decide whether a material change has occurred, the country condition evidence that it's relying upon speak loudly and its findings regarding the legal situation of ethnic Eritreans in Ethiopia appears quite important. mister Mangastab gets another shot. And just for good measure. <music> the court also notes the quote dire picture of conditions in Eritrea, end quote, describing, quote, one frequently used torture method described in the State Department's twenty twenty report, nicknamed Helicopter, Quote. Pretty gruesome stuff, and relevant, I suppose, to any Eritrean-based asylum claims currently pending in immigration courts throughout the country. Because these harms described can occur to any, quote, Eritrean citizens between the ages of 18 and 50, end quote, who refuse to appear for his or her mandatory national service, which is itself often, quote, unpaid-forced labor that will often last indefinitely under threat of torture, end quote. So that's Eritrea. And it's even relevant for ethnic Eritrean Ethiopians, such as Mr. Mangastab, because, as found in this case, quote, ongoing military cooperation between Ethiopia and Eritrea have rendered immigration enforcement cooperation between the two countries more feasible, end quote. To put a period on it, the Seventh Circuit states that in Eritrea, quote, those conditions are horrific, end quote. What a case. And that is Mangastab v. Garland. Moving on is Matter of NICA 4, published by the BIA. This is actually the sole pseudo-loss for non-citizens this week. It regards what exactly is a timely assertion of a mandatory claims processing rule requirement, here the requirement that NTAs contain the time and place of a non-citizen's first hearing. Mr. Nikifor is from Cameroon and was detained and placed in removal proceedings in Gina, Louisiana, but the notice to appear initiating proceedings did not contain the date, time, or location of his first hearing. Mr. Nikephor was ultimately ordered removed, appealed, and then filed a motion to reopen premised on the fact that the NTA was deficient. In this decision here, the BIA technically granted the motion. But on the substance, the BIA rejected Mr. Nikephor's arguments. As so often occurs, a lot of important stuff is in the footnotes. For example... The BIA reiterated in a footnote that it believes the regulatory requirement concerning what must be in a notice to appear is a claims processing rule. But it also noted that the BIA has not yet, and it has not done so here, determined whether the NTA requirements under the statute at INA Section 239A1G are also claims processing rules. Unsure if that matters in practice to succeed on such a motion, and also, the BIA states that the 3rd, 4th, 7th, 10th, and 11th circuits have already held that the statute is a claims processing rule. What a wonky issue this claims processing rule stuff is. But anyway, the regulation is a mandatory claims processing rule, so violation of it, that is, a deficient NTA, can and should result in relief if timely raised. Indeed, as we discussed last week in that Second Circuit case, quote, The Supreme Court has repeatedly said that if a party properly raises a mandatory claims processing rule, the rule is unalterable, end quote. But relying on Fifth Circuit precedent, which in turn appears to quote Supreme Court precedent, the BIA explained that mandatory as claims processing rules may be, quote, an objection based on a mandatory claims processing rule may be forfeited if the party asserting the rule waits too long to raise the point. End quote. Here, the BIA held that raising the claims processing rule violation, that is the deficient NTA for the first time in a motion to reopen, is not timely. And then it held, relying on Fifth Circuit precedent, that, quote, jurisprudence does not require a separate examination of prejudice once an objection to a claim's processing rule is deemed to be untimely and forfeited, end quote. Which makes the BIA's decision to decide this issue in a case arising in the Fifth Circuit pretty important and seemingly intentional. For as the BIA itself notes, the Seventh Circuit has held that, quote, a valid claims processing objection is available for those who make timely objections as well as those whose timing is excusable and who can show prejudice, end quote. That's Ariola Ochoa v. Garland discussed on episode 108 of the podcast. And as the BIA recognizes in a footnote here, the Seventh Circuit has also explained that the prejudice inquiry, quote, focuses specifically on prejudice suffered at the time of the hearing, end quote. That's Hernandez Alvarez v. Barr, decided by the Seventh Circuit in 2020. So that's different than what the BIA is saying in its decision here, meaning that at a minimum, the BIA decision appears, at least partially, not to be good law in the Seventh Circuit. The BIA respectfully disagrees with the Seventh Circuit's approach, and holds here that Mr. Nikifor forfeited his right to assert the mandatory claims processing rule violation by waiting too long, and that no separate prejudice argument could save his untimely assertion. All of that being said, under Nishava's in and matter of MFO, Mr. Nikifor never stopped accruing continuous physical presence for voluntary departure purposes. Apparently he didn't qualify for voluntary departure before, but now, as the clock never stopped, he does. So the BIA remanded for consideration only of post-conclusion voluntary departure. Maybe. Put a pin in that and get back to it in a sec. So congrats a bit to Jeffrey B. Rubin for Respondent. You didn't get the win you wanted, but you got something. And yeah, let's dive some more into the footnotes. In a footnote, the BIA explains a knotty issue that I often see attorneys discussing in the Facebook groups. Here, the BIA explained that because DHS chose to detain Mr. Nikifor in Louisiana, Fifth Circuit law applies to the case, even though the immigration judge who decided the case was sitting in Falls Church, Virginia, in the Fourth Circuit. As longtime listeners will know, there are some pretty big differences between the Fifth and Fourth Circuit jurisprudence when it comes to immigration. Including an asylum or the application of the realistic probability test, and maybe for adjudication of mandatory claims processing rules. Yet the BIA has decided, based it appears on another decision it published in 2020, to apply the law of the forum where DHS chose to detain rather than the forum where the judge is sitting. Anyway, caveat much of this decision, because at the end of the day, it is circuit precedent that governs the effect of violations of mandatory claims processing rules. And if you're in the Seventh Circuit, well, you've got some good law on your side already. Finally, how about this nugget? The BIA, while remanding for consideration of voluntary departure, also technically remanded for, quote, any other issues the immigration judge deems appropriate, end quote. With that language, and under matter of LS and matter of Patel, it would seem to me that actually, the IJ can do a whole lot more than simply adjudicate voluntary departure on remand. Even the BIA seems to agree, with its tantalizing footnote reminding the IJ that Cameroon was designated Temporary Protected Status during the course of appeal. So sneaky, you BIA. And that is Matter of Nica 4. That leaves us with Velasquez Samayoa v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on June 24, 2022. This decision is about protection under the Convention Against Torture and expert testimony. Mr. Velasquez Samayo is from El Salvador and has lived in the U.S. for 40 years, since being brought to this country at 2 or 3 years old. He became a lawful permanent resident in 1995 at 17, but he didn't naturalize, so I'm talking about him. For reasons that likely have to do with his situation residing in the Los Angeles area in the mid-90s at 15 years old, he, quote, joined the White Fence Gang, a rival of MS-13 in Los Angeles, and Mr. Velasquez-Samayoa often fought with MS-13 members, end quote. He got gang tattoos, including one on his neck, and as a very young adult, received a bunch of gang-related felonies that resulted in an 18-year prison sentence. Quote, Upon moving prison facilities about seven years into his sentence, he was stabbed over 20 times by gang members and was placed in protective custody for the remainder of his sentence, quote. And that's in the U.S. With the help of a prison psychologist, he, quote, realized he had wasted his entire life with gangs, end quote. DHS detained him and initiated removal proceedings after his release from criminal custody. Everybody agrees that he's removable and only potentially eligible for cat deferral due to his convictions. A form of protection that is not discretionary and is mandatory, so long as the burden is met. An immigration judge in the BIA held that he had not met his burden, notwithstanding finding Mr. velasquez Samaioa credible and the expert testimony of Dr. Thomas Borman credible. An expert who I believe has appeared in decisions on the podcast before. Man, I'm reading too many decisions. And if you need Dr. Borman's services, remember that DHS conceded here, and the Ninth Circuit has now noted in a published decision, his expertise on, quote, gang activity and violence in El Salvador, end quote. Mr. Velasquez Semayoa and his expert testified to his fears of murder in El Salvador from MS-13 members and the 18th Street Gang due to his rival tattoos and his gang involvement in the U.S. And I mean, remember, he's already been stabbed 20 times. Also, his criminal record appears to have something to do with violence that he committed against MS-13 members. Notably to remember, apparently these gangs, quote, are present in 95% of Salvadoran municipalities, end quote. Mr. Velasquez Semayoa fears Salvadoran government officials for similar reasons, especially because of the giant gang acronym tattoo that he has on his neck. So again, the IJ and the BIA denied, relying on the off quoted matter of JFF to conclude that Mr. Velasquez Samayoa's fears were based simply on a hypothetical chain of events, which of course all future torture fears always are, and that he hadn't established that each chain in that event are more likely than not to occur. But the Ninth Circuit believes that the IJ and the BIA conducted the wrong analysis. Because under Ninth Circuit precedent, and really that of a lot of circuits, quote, in assessing a CAT claim from an applicant who has posited multiple theories for why he might be tortured, the relevant inquiry is whether the total probability that the applicant will be tortured, considering all potential sources of and reasons for torture, exceeds 50%, quote. The Ninth Circuit isn't going to overrule the Attorney General's decision in matter of JFF from all those years ago because it believes that it's consistent with Ninth Circuit precedent. Yes, a non-citizen must establish that each hypothetical on the chain is more likely than not to occur, but the hypothetical harms can come from multiple sources, and must be considered in the aggregate when conducting the chain analysis. Fleetwood Mac made clear many years ago that you can never break the chain, and the Ninth circuit is reminding the BIA here. While the BIA can evaluate every link along the way, it can't separate out the harms during its analysis. Or put another way, quote, even if the agency were to determine that the applicant did not carry his cat burden on the basis of any one theory, considered individually, the agency's work would not be done. It would still have to assess whether the applicant's aggregate risk of torture, considering all theories collectively, entitled him to cat relief, end quote. What does that look like in practice? Well, the BIA erred here by considering the hypothetical events leading to Mr. Velasquez Samaioa's fears of gangs and Salvadoran officials separately, rather than in the aggregate. Quote, The BIA considered his two separate theories of torture as a single hypothetical chain of events and denied his cat claim because the probability of that hypothetical chain occurring was not high enough. But the BIA should have considered his claim as a single hypothetical chain of events. End quote. To keep it going, and a succinct quote wonderful for appeals in the Ninth Circuit, quote, by requiring Mr. Velasquez Samayoa to show that every step in two hypothetical chains was more likely than not to occur, the BIA increased his cat burden, End quote. Meow. Plus, said the Ninth Circuit, the IJ and the BIA erred in disregarding Dr. Bowman's credible expert testimony and that's because it appears, relying on the Supreme Court's Garland v. Dye decision two terms ago, IJs may only reject credible expert testimony where it is, quote, outweighed by other persuasive evidence, end quote. Emphasis in the original. The IJ, quote, cannot reject that expert's testimony for the sole reason that it is not corroborated by additional evidence, end quote. Oh, mama. Specifically, quote, the mere fact that Dr. Borman's testimony is not corroborated by country conditions evidence is not a valid reason for rejecting that testimony. Expert testimony can itself provide evidence of country conditions, end quote. Have I mentioned how important it is to qualify your witness as an expert in immigration court? Anyway, it seems that Dr. Borman killed it, and the IJ didn't identify contrary evidence in the record. For example, Dr. Borman explained how, quote, relatively few gang members live to be 40. So given that Mr. Samayoa is more than 40 years old, and that as Mr. Samayoa will be readily identified as a gang member, he is likely to be targeted as a gang leader, end quote. There's a logic I can use. Case remanded. Congratulations, Professors Gene Reyes and Niels Frenzen from the University of Southern California School of Law Immigration Clinic. And that is Vlaska Samayoa v. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli and & Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M-Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.